At its core, degrowth economics challenges the dominant paradigm that views economic growth as the solution to all societal problems and emphasizes the importance of ecological sustainability and social justice. Instead of pursuing endless growth and consumption, degrowth economics suggests that we should focus on meeting our basic needs and living within our means. This involves rethinking our current patterns of consumption, reducing waste, and prioritizing sustainable and equitable forms of production. In previous episodes on this podcast, we have explored alternative schools such as ecological and feminist economics. The degrowth movement draws on theories from both of these schools and also takes on a post-colonial stance to the issue. While it's still a relatively new and controversial concept, it has gained significant attention in recent years. In part one of this two-part series, I speak with JP, who is currently pursuing a master's focusing on degrowth at the University of Barcelona. My name is Sophia, and you're listening to Expanding Economics. JP, and welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Hey, Sophia. Yes, thank you so much for, for having me on. Uh, to anybody listening today, my name is JP. I'm from Mexico City, Mexico, and I'm a McGill University alumni from uh, where I did a um, uh, joint honors in economics and environmental sciences. And I'm currently a master's student of uh, degrowth at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. Very happy to be here today. Very happy to have you too. And uh, when did you graduate from McGill? graduated just as the pandemic hit. So uh, 2020, yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit then about um, kind of your experience in McGill undergraduate program and how you decided to continue studying at the master's level and why exactly you chose the program that you did? If I'm speaking academically about my time at McGill, uh, so again, I I did a... um, uh, double program with uh, econ and environmental sciences. And I've got to say that both were rather disappointing in the depth uh, that they went into the urgency and scale of the problem. Uh, my econ classes were entirely neoclassical, uh, very little diversity in thought or school. Um, you know, not once did I hear the word Marx or feminist economics or ecological economics, uh, let alone degrowth. Um, and, and so for me, um, I mean, it was all just numbers and models and, and assumptions and axioms that our professors kept telling us, you know, these aren't true in real life, but you know, that's just to make the math work and, and, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out eventually. Uh, so that was just rather disappointing, uh, given that the economy is the largest contributor to many of the crises that we face today. It's not just climate change, right? Biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, rising poverty, uh, huge inequality within countries and between countries, uh, social unrest, migration, loss of topsoil, et cetera, right? Uh, And the economy is pretty much the biggest player to every single one of those issues that we face today. And uh, the fact that that was entirely ignored in my economics classes and and even in my environmental science classes, it was pretty. It was in, It didn't go into much depth, and and there weren't any profs screaming at us like, "Guys, this is an emergency," you know, like we have to do something. Um, and so uh, that really uh, led me to to do more research uh, personally into how we could genuinely fix this. Uh, and I was very very lucky that in my last year. 
I got to pick a seminar class. This was for my environment degree uh, uh, on degrowth, on degrowth economics. So no, it wasn't part of my econ degree. It was part of my environmental science degree. And I'm like, and then I was like, I'd never heard of degrowth before. This was in uh, 2020. And uh, I spent a lot of time reading into this. I, I, I give a lot of thanks to my professor, Nicolas Cosoy. If you're reading this, Nico, please answer my emails. It's been a while. <laughs> uh, and and uh, a couple of years after that, after reading a lot, following a lot of people on Twitter, picking up some books, uh, I, I became committed that uh, we need to degrow the size of our economy. So is that what led you to choosing the University of Barcelona, and do you feel that that program is giving you kind of what you were looking for back in your undergraduate? Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I needed the flexibility uh, of, of being able to study online, and uh, after following a couple of these academics on Twitter for a while, uh, I saw that they were they were they, they had started the first ever the first uh, online degrowth masters. Um, I didn't. I applied to be on the first cohort, but then I decided to not accept the offer because I didn't really want to be a guinea pig uh, for the first online trial. So then I reapplied for the second cohort, and and um, my reasoning was: look, I've been reading well into degrowth and and uh, trying to understand what it means and and the potential implications that it could have for our societies and our economies, uh, but. There's only so much that you can do non-structured, or at least I guess it, it worked better for me to have a structured program uh, and as well as you know personal interactions with degrowth scholars from around the world. And the reason I chose the online one, aside from flexibility, was because it had better professors. Since they didn't have to be in Barcelona, they were all over the world, uh, you know, from Colombia to Australia to the US and um, in India and uh, of course a lot of Europeans and 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 so far it has given me more hope and and more of an idea a much better idea of what the solution actually entails and what we kind of have to do to solve uh, a lot of our crises um, and don't get me wrong degrowth is not the solution to everything right there are things that that uh, my master's is that is not fully inclusive right um, degrowth wasn't always uh, decolonial in nature. Degrowth wasn't always feminist in nature. These things have been incorporated into it, but they're still the very Western, very white, very male-centric thinking, which is perverse in, in our imaginaries and in our entire lives. Uh, and so that's very hard to shake off, right? Even within these degrowth circles, right? Uh, but, but they try, they do try. And, 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 and I, I appreciate the wide variety of topics that we've been covering in, in my master's, all the way from, uh, the learning about the IPCC models to feminist economics uh, classes to um, learning about the pluriverse and different ontologies and ways of being and knowing and relating to nature, thinking about different narratives to shape our lives and shape our way of thinking uh, to very math and, uh, you know, heavy ecological economics, right, measuring throughput, uh, you know, the uh, uh, inputs of energy and matter, how they cycle through the economy, how they how we expel them, etc. And of course, the impacts that that might have on the ecology and, and nature to very like historical classes, right? The history of growth, how did we get to become so growth obsessed and so growth minded, right? Where did that come about? And, and uh, the history of colonialism, right? Capitalism is an inherently colonial and imperial uh, uh, economic system. Uh, and there's a history to that. There, you know, it didn't just 
decide to be that way, you know, and it, it didn't just happen overnight. This happened over centuries. For you, because I know this is quite debated uh, in the degrowth sphere, is degrowth like, rooted in kind of a Marxist stance against capitalism? Or do you think that while there's some overlap, they fundamentally are advocating for different things? That's a, it's a tricky question. Uh, a lot of my professors are, are I mean, at least self-identify as, as Marxist economists or uh, at least uh, teach Marxian uh, uh, principles or, or ideas. You know, we talk about Marx fa fairly often. Uh, but there are a lot of things that Marx has gotten wrong. And there are a lot of, uh, I mean, Marxism has, has evolved quite significantly over the last century. Um, at the end of the day, Degrowth, in my opinion, is pretty much inherently anti-capitalist because capitalism is one of the only systems, pretty much the only economic system that human civilization has concocted uh, that requires, absolutely requires, exponential expansion, right? What happens every time that there's a recession, right? It's a crisis, it's chaos. Unemployment rises, inflation. We can't pay, uh, you know, there's not enough tax revenue. We can't pay off our debts, you know, geopolitics become involved, supply chain issues, etc right? That is inherently a very unstable system. If at any point it doesn't continue to increase, uh, it's, it's mayhem, right? And so because of that, and degrowth is calling for a reduction of the size of our economies in a planned way, right? Degrowth is not a recession. Uh, it is, in my opinion, inherently anti-capitalist. However, there are degrowthers that are not necessarily anti-capitalist and are more of a, in a, in a reformist camp or a slightly more moderate or less radical camp. Um, that want to work with the system that we have in place to reduce the size of our economies uh, still within capitalism. I don't think that's possible. Um, you know, maybe it'll converge uh, between the two, but um, I mean, uh, Kohei Saito, a Japanese author, he just released a book uh, last year, uh, Marx and the Anthropocene uh, towards uh, degrowth communism, something along those lines. And uh, he makes the case that Marx was an ecologist uh, in a lot of his writing and, and, and that um, uh, degrowth uh, has many, many links to communism and many, many links to uh, what Marx was saying. And that's totally true. I mean, Marx said a lot of good stuff, right? Especially for his day, he spelled it out quite clearly. Uh, uh, however, there is more nuance, I think. Uh, um, that has been added to Marxian thought uh, after a while. And, and in th at the end of the day, you know, if you're a Marxist and you, know, you care and, and you're a degrowther and you care, there are ways that you can work together and, and achieve the same outcome. You kind of began to touch on this a little bit, just kind of that there's this less radical school, more reformists. And then if we go a little bit further, we have the green gro growthers, the people who are pro-capitalist, but think that there can be a way that it can become sustainable through circular economy. Um, what is your go-to response to the green growth, the general argument that um, the way forward is this new means of sustainability? Ah, uh, yes, our fellow, our fellow eco eco modernists on the left. Um, it's tricky, right? I mean, the typical graph you'll see is like, hey, look at this. The UK has increased GDP by 75% in the last 30 years, whereas they've decreased their CO2 emissions uh, by, I don't know, let's say 25%. I'm butchering these numbers. It doesn't matter. Uh, but they'll point to these graphs and they'll show like, look, this is, this is uh, decoupling. This is almost, it's not absolute decoupling, 
but it is decoupling, right? And some countries have almost absolutely decoupled from CO2 emissions, right? That's, that's the key there. Uh, as I was mentioning earlier in the, in, in the conversation, there are a lot more consequences, social and ecological, than just CO2 emissions. So no one in degrowth argues against the idea that it is possible to absolutely decouple our economic growth uh, from ecological impact, potentially, in the future. What they argue against, however, is the speed at, at which it might take place. So when we're looking at these countries, right, the Nordic, the Nordic countries, uh, Costa Rica, even Mexico, Turkey, just US, they've all been decreasing emissions whilst increasing GDP. However, when you look at the rate of change of the decrease in emissions, it's pathetic, right? Like it's, I mean, don't get me wrong, it is pathetic. Right, we need the IPCC is telling us that we need a reduction, an absolute reduction of seven percent of emissions every single year until 2030, and then a little less so until 2050. Their rates are at like two percent a year, three percent a year, etc. Right, and and how do we, how how are we pretending still, given how much chaos we're seeing around the world, uh, uh, that this is still even viable, that we're going to be able to continue growing our economies. Um, and and at the same time decouples right so continuing to grow our economies means that we're using more matter and energy right the more matter and energy the more ecological impacts we have so that means that the problem just gets bigger and bigger we have to decarbonize more and more we have to decouple more and more from biodiversity loss from ocean acidification from uh, eutrophication from fertilizer runoff right from social impacts from migration etc how are we going to decouple all of this in the amount of time that we have left uh, if we continue pursuing a unspecified growth of GDP, right? Because the growth of GDP could be anything, a school shooting, a oil spill, uh, you know, a concert increases GDP. All of those things necessary for the reproduction of life and for well-being and, and, and human fulfillment? I don't think so, right? Um, so in my opinion, and I think the opinion of a lot of degrowthers, um, we won't get there fast enough if we continue to, con to pursue an, an abstract growth of GDP as our economy, um, uh, as, our, as our main overall target in our policies, whether some, some industries do have to degrow, right? I mean, degrowth is not, is not degrow everything, have less hospitals, less schools, less roads. No, that's ridiculous. We need more hospitals. We need more schools, right? We need better public electric transportation, right? We need universal basic services for everybody. We need access to nutritious food, access to social housing, access to uh, um, um, the arts, culture, languages, etc. But we don't need private jets. We don't need mansions. We don't need meat. We don't need SUVs, etc. Those things, we don't need weapons. Those things need to degrow. Yeah, and um, I'm going to go into kind of something that you wrote in your article on climate talks. Um, and basically what you mentioned was that policies such as um, less necessary production, improving public services, uh, introducing a job guarantee, reducing work time, canceling debts, um, and limiting unequal exchange between countries are some of the things that can uh, spur degrowth. So at first I was a little bit confused by some of them, kind of like, okay, so how does increasing public services, how does increasing uh, guaranteed income like pursue this mission? But I guess kind of what I'm understanding is it's a little bit of a reallocation towards what we're prioritizing, towards things that are less carbon intensive and more necessary. 
Exactly, exactly. And, and the key thing is, so degrowth is not just about uh, reducing our ecological footprint. It's also a matter of justice, right? We live in an extremely unjust world that has historically for centuries been unjust. Um, it is about redistributing debts that have been, that are historically and currently owed uh, to marginalized populations, to the global south, to people of color, to queer people, to women, etc., cetera, uh, that haven't reaped all of the benefits of growth and an increase in GDP and are still fighting to survive, right? I mean, the majority of the world's population has to work to survive. We can, that's crazy. We have to work if we want to stay alive, which is mind-blowing in the 21st century. Uh, but if you're able to provide, and right, and, and so what happens? You take up the, sh the, the crappiest job that you can get, right? You take the lowest wage that you can get because you're desperate because you've got two kids with hungry bellies and you've got a mortgage to pay and car insurance to pay. Um, and um, you end up producing crap that nobody really needs. You end up working for a job and you end up creating emissions, throughput, waste, et cetera, for no apparent reason except the fact that you have to live. But what if, what if we didn't have to work to survive? What if we had the basic necessities covered? What if we had, uh, you know, uh, efficient mobility? What if we had access to free, nutritious food, housing, uh, education, healthcare, etc.? Well, then, what happens is those who choose to work, and I think the majority of human beings would choose to work because we're too curious and we will, we'll get bored just sitting at home watching Netflix. Uh, um, you can take up meaningful work if the government is able to provide, say, or, or private corporations or nonprofit, ideally nonprofit co uh, cooperatives, are able to provide ecologically and socially beneficial so, uh, uh, jobs. Why wouldn't you take that instead of working at McDonald's if you don't have to work at McDonald's to survive, right? And then you're able to feel like a contributing, genuinely contributing member to a society, right? You have a better purpose than just getting the bills paid at the end of the month, right? Um, and, and we'll have less of a need for excess, right? We have this, we're like in a race, we're in a marathon that will never stop and we keep pushing and pushing for more and more and, and ads tell us that we're not good enough, that you're too ugly, that you don't have this, that you, know, uh, that you don't have the right clothes or the right hair and, and we're convinced that we're never gonna catch up. We need to keep working and working and working to survive, to have the better phone, to have the better clothes. Um, and if we didn't need to, if we weren't in this race, maybe we could take a little bit of time to chill out. So in um, degrowth economics, like I'm understanding from your curriculum, you're learning about a lot of these kind of different ways that picking apart the system through different lenses. Are there, has it reached a point where there is economic tools being developed or economic theories or frameworks being developed to kind of pursue these larger ideological goals. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, look, degrowth itself is still pretty nascent. It's, it's been around for, uh, let's say, 15, 20 years, even though ecological economics and, and bioeconomics has been around for a long time. Um, we are still seen as uh, sometimes as, as hippies or, or idealistic or naive or um, not pragmatic enough. Uh, and, and, and to an extent, um, a lot, most degrowthers have not been good policymakers. Uh, we haven't proposed good policies and we haven't uh, uh, taken into account what it means to create a policy agenda. Right now, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a course by Tim Tariq on, on policies and showing us how, uh, how to create a effective, efficient, convincing, and to the point policy agenda 
filled with you know very deep growthy policies right like a maximum income cap or uh, um, a specific type of, of universal service or um, you know an increase in tax on wealth or uh, a mandated uh, reduction of a, of a specific sector's economy, etc. So we need a lot more of that. We need people who are capable at writing policy, at creating excellent policy agendas, and unfortunately in this world who have the right connections, right? To whisper in the ears of politicians and policymakers that, hey, maybe you should uh, vote this way for once and it'll be better for your constituents, right? Um, however, it's not all about top-down, right? It's also about bottom-up. And uh, thankfully, there are a significant amount of initiatives around the world that are anti-capitalist in nature and are trying to create dual power and, and trying to provide services, products, ways of living and being uh, that don't necessarily subscribe to the growth-based agenda or Western ideals of freedom, individuality, uh, and, and, and um, success. Uh, and are attempting to be more in connection with their surroundings, with their communities, with nature, with uh, the principles of sufficiency, of pluriversality, of sobriety. Um, um, there are tons of examples. I mean, I, I'm happy to provide a, a, a link maybe later uh, that you could put on the description, but um, um, they do exist, right? But it's tough. It's tough. We're facing the biggest monster this world has ever seen, right? With the most amount of wealth that's concentrated, with the most powerful propaganda and media machines available, um, and with a whole lot of cops and militaries uh, to, to uh, suppress any kind of resistance. Uh, but there are concrete examples of degrowth in practice, degrowth living, uh, growing food uh, uh, and, in, in, uh, following degrowth principles. And what we are missing though, is alliances, alliances between labor movements, alliances between feminist movements, between racial justice movements, social justice movements, class justice movements, and indigenous people's movements, global south movements, peasant movements, etc. Right? There is not enough talking between these movements. And we're all really, at the end of the day, fighting an intersectional battle, right? All of us really are are are, are at the whims of capitalism and we're fighting against capitalism right and and i think more and more people need to understand that so many of our issues are completely entirely interrelated uh and and look if we don't have the backing of these movements if we don't talk to unions to syndicates uh and trade unions to ask hey let's work together on proposing a just transition so that we can decrease the scale of your uh sector whether it be coal oil mining creating cars etc Right, so you can be either retrained, have a better pension in, for the rest of your life. Um, you know, make sure that the transition is as easy as possible for the workers. And and you know, fair fair enough that the workers complain uh, from a lot of these environmentalist policies, right? Because they're not done with the forethought of how is this going to impact the worker? How is it going to impact the factory worker who's working ten hours a day? You know, lugging coal around and and breaking his head, their back and um, uh, we need a lot more solidarity and alliance building between a lot of these movements if we are if we have a chance. I really appreciate the intersectional approach that degrowth takes. I think it's uh, very nuanced. Um, so, in that case, what sort of research is the school producing? Like, for example, what, like your thesis, what ex what sort of topics 
is it um, tackling and what tools are being used, like what sort of research methods are being used to understand it? So thankfully with this um, program, you can do projects and not just academic writing, uh, which I really appreciate because I think too much attention and funding has been spent on acad academia and not enough on praxis, right? Uh, not enough of, of boots on the ground creating uh, physical community change. And I've noticed a void. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of, of communication, propaganda, narratives, uh, and how governments use those tools and, uh, to psychologically uh, impact movements, uh, suppress movements, uh, influence the population uh, in very perverse ways, very perverse ways. This happens all of the time. At every kind of media or content that you're looking at, there is something, some hidden agenda probably behind it. Uh, and so I've been thinking, how can we use these tools that have been researched for decades, right, uh, to fight back, right? How can we communicate degrowth uh, at a more, in a more effective, more efficient, more pragmatic way that reaches into people's values, that reaches into what they care about, uh, uh, um, what really matters to them in their day-to-day -day life. It's very hard to think, oh, yeah, let's stop climate change or solve world hunger, but shit, I got to worry about my three kids, you know, getting to school on time and, you know, cleaning the house and doing all this, all this stuff. Um, so how can we communicate degrowth in a more impactful manner uh, to convince more and more people in, with the overall aim of shifting the Overton window, right, to, of what is an acceptable policy to, to include more degrowth-based policies into what the left, the right, the center, the radicals consider acceptable policy or acceptable ways of, of living or thinking or narratives. Um, so my idea is to create a platform uh, with different tools that people can use to communicate degrowth, whether that be, you know, the 50 most common arguments against degrowth and how to rebut them with sources, uh, a fact sheet with the most convincing data and graphics to show that our economies have reached the, the point of uh, uh, hey man, you crossed the line. You know we got we got we got to take a couple steps back uh, because things are getting pretty intense and we don't know how to fix them properly. Um, I'd like to make a couple of uh, uh, presentations on how to talk about degrowth or post growth to different audiences. Whether you're talking to politicians, business folks, uh, educators, liberals, conservatives, uh, uh, children, even um, uh, to really show that degrowth can impact any part of your life and it really i mean at the end of the day i don't i think 99.99 percent of the world's population would benefit from uh, a, a degrowth-based economy right the only ones that wouldn't are the ones with all the power right the top 0.01 the billionaires essentially right the media moguls the politicians who are obsessed with this power and showing people, explaining to people that they will benefit from, from, from this and from halting our obsession with growth. Uh, that's something that I'm really looking forward to. And my methodologies will be very a lot of interviews, uh, talking to a lot of scholars in the field. I would like to focus particularly on Global South scholars and Global South activists, practitioners, leaders, workers, uh, to get their views on this topic, to get their perspectives and, and make sure that it's, a, it's a, I really want it to be a collaborative uh, project and just let it out and let it become a commons for the entire world to use for free uh, until I run out of money to pay for the host hosting the <laughs> website to do to talk about one one big thing that is happening uh, and this is very very exciting um, so Jason Hickel, Yorgos Kalis, and Julia Steinberger three very prominent degrowth um, uh, researchers they recently got 
uh, $10 million grant uh, from uh, the European Research Council. Uh, and this is big news, right? Degrowth barely ever gets any money. Uh, and their task is to essentially figure out what a post-growth deal would look like that radically reduces energy and resource use whilst combating poverty and envisioning a good life for all. So a lot of modeling, a lot of policy work, policy briefs, uh, a lot of work on uh, decolonization, uh, work on feminist economics. Uh, so that's actually super, super exciting. No, that sounds like it will definitely be some uh, groundbreaking work. And also, like, the more pragmatic approach you're taking as well is very, I think it's great, like, really taking yourself out of the ivy tower and, like, grounding the economics in the, so in, in the social world where the economy is socially constructed. So that is makes so much sense. Okay. Well, we have uh, two minutes left, so I'll throw it to you to say if there's any kind of last things on your mind about degrowth or your experience that you think is worth sharing. Yeah, definitely. If anybody has stuck to the end of this podcast, I want you to know that from the bottom of my heart, you matter. What you do matters. The decisions that you take will have an impact and consequences in the future of all of our lives. You have potentially been lied to for the entirety of your lives. And there is a lot, a lot, a lot that you need to unlearn. And you need to put in the effort to unlearn these things, unlearn the narratives that you've been fed to from kindergarten, in your comic books, in, in the movies, TV shows, politicians, your parents, etc. And by doing so, by decolonizing your imaginaries, you open up space to think differently, to perceive the world differently, to perceive your relationship with nature differently, your relationship with other human beings differently, with even non-living things differently, right? And by doing that, you open up the an immense amount of possibilities, possibilities to live your life the way that makes you happy, a life that makes, uh, um, a life where you don't have to work to survive, a life that has meaning and fulfillment and full of well-being and sustainability. Um, really, every choice you make matters. You matter. The decisions that you take in the next couple of years are crucial. And the more and more folks we have working on these solutions, the better. And you can be anything, a lawyer, a doctor, a graphic designer, a writer. Everybody has a role to play. And it's crucial that we all play that role. That's beautiful. Thanks, JP. And thank you all for listening. Our next episode in this series will be tackling the other side of the debate, which is green growth. So stay tuned. My name is Sophia, and you're listening to Expanding Economics. <laughs>